Would there have been a United States without George Washington? Him alone, that specific individual. Would Britain have sued for peace with Adolf Hitler after the catastrophic fall of France if it hadn't been for Winston Churchill? This was their fighting tower. Would America have won the Cold War if Ronald Reagan had lost to Jimmy Carter? Tear down this wall. Now, this entire idea of the irreplaceable individual is known as the great man theory. And this theory, this idea that the Napoleonic period would have been very different if Napoleon hadn't, you know, been there, seems simple and obvious. And because it's so simple and so obvious, the entire idea has to be destroyed. In this cynical and unheroic age of ours, the competing theory is called history from below. It's very popular with left-wingers in general and Marxists in particular. History from below focuses on the people not mentioned in history, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, the poor, etc. And it argues that this enormous tide of the masses, that's what makes things happen. The outcome is essentially unchangeable. What history from below essentially argues is that if Adolf Hitler had been killed in World War I, then the masses of disaffected Germans would have simply found someone else to lead them inevitably towards fascism. Now, history from below appeals to collectivists who think that historical figures are merely the flotsam carried along on top the unstoppable wave of the masses. The great man theory, on the other hand, appeals to individuals who feel that they're masters of their own destiny and what they do or don't do can change the world. Individual achievement, personal heroism, physical courage, all of that has to be removed in a collectivist world. Deconstructed is the term. That's why Howard Zinn, who described himself as something of an anarchist, something of a socialist, wrote his enormously influential A People's History of the United States, in which he says, the Founding Fathers were just self-serving elitists interested in nothing other than, quote, guns and greed, unquote. A people's history of the United States is now essentially the only history book to appear in American schools and universities. And this is why the case of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is so interesting. You see, I believe in the great man theory, and I believe that Lawrence Chamberlain was one of those great men. But many modern historians claim that the entire horseshoe nail idea is nonsense, that if he had not been on Little Round Top that day, then things would have continued pretty much as they would have ended up if he had been. And if you think that's incredible, you ain't heard nothing yet, but we'll get back to that in just a second. You know, I was thinking about this and I realized there are people out there who don't really need life insurance. If you're one of those people that are determined that you will, in fact, live forever and have no wife or kids or family or business partners or any other obligations, then life insurance probably isn't for you. But if you're one of those other people who happen to live in the real world, then it's something you really do need to think about whether you really want to or not. Because if someone relies on your financial support, whether that's a child or an aging parent or a business partner, you're going to need life insurance. And to properly provide for their families, most people need 10 times the life insurance coverage they get through their employer if they get it at all. That's why Policy Genius is such a wonderful thing to have. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save 1300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. Eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for one simple phone call. So to get started is easy. Just first head to policygenius.com. The Policy Genius team will be there to handle the paperwork and the scheduling, and it's all for free. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. This is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and his actions on July 2nd, 1863 form what is perhaps the greatest horseshoe nail story in American history. Now, for those of you who haven't heard it before, 
Here's a little proverb called, for want of a nail. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Now, you can make the case, and I'll try to do that a little bit later on, that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain saved the United States as we know it today. Chamberlain was the horseshoe nail that was not wanting. So the great what if goes something like this. Chamberlain is killed in action early in the Civil War. Someone else is leading the 20th Maine Regiment at Gettysburg. That person doesn't have the calm courage to steady his men at Little Round Top. Without that example, when the Confederates attack in force, the 20th Maine breaks and runs. Because the 20th Maine breaks and runs, Confederates take Little Round Top. Because the Confederates take Little Round Top, their artillery defilades, that means plows right down the length of the entire Union line. The Confederate bombardment causes the Union line to scatter. The Union line scattering leads to a Confederate victory at Gettysburg. Confederate victory at Gettysburg means the Confederates march unopposed into Washington. The capture of Washington means a truce, meaning two nations. And now old people can't travel from New York to Miami without a passport all for the want of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Now, all of that may sound ridiculous, and maybe it is, but every link in the chain seems to be a near certainty. So, the question is, would the want of a Chamberlain have made a difference? Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was born on September 8, 1828, in Brewer, Maine, just across the Penobscot River from Bangor. His mother, Sarah Brasto Chamberlain, was a great beauty, filled with warmth and tenderness. She would be the one to teach him how to listen to the sound of the wind blowing through the trees and how he could identify each species by the sound of their rustling leaves. She would be the influence that would kindle his quick mind and his sensitive nature, his remarkable powers of observation, his inner thoughtfulness, and skill with language. Now, in a surviving photograph, Lawrence's father, Joshua Chamberlain Jr., looks like the assistant principal at Seventh Hell High School, holding spiked and electrified paddles in both hands just out of frame. He was not the kind of father who would see his son crying and walk over, give him a big hug and say, hey, what's the matter, buddy? Flinty is a term sometimes used to describe these severe men from the severe weather of Maine, and it describes him perfectly. Lawrence Chamberlain's father was a cold, hard man, but also the kind you could strike sparks from, although that doesn't mean it was a pleasant experience. One day, young Lawrence was pitching freshly mown hay in an ox-drawn wagon. Backbreaking work, by the way and his father was following some distance behind, raking and gathering the scraps. Now, as Lawrence took the wagon across a small brook, he accidentally managed to wedge one of the front wheels tightly into the gap between two large stumps, and then the back wheel started to sink into the sand. Clear that wheel, commanded Joshua, the elder, from back on the other side of the stream. But this wagon was well and truly stuck, and his father clearly had no idea how badly. How am I gonna do it, he shouted back. And then he immediately realized his mistake. As he saw the storm clouds gathering upon the countenance of Father Joshua, do it, that's how. So he jumped down off the cart, he grabbed hold of the hub of the wagon wheel and lifted with everything he had. As the wheel came up, it caused the tongue of the wagon to prod one of the oxen in the rear and yoked together, they both immediately bolted up the side of the bank, bringing the wagon and the hay with them for good measure. When his father walked past him, he didn't say a word. The patriarch did not believe in unnecessary talk. Somehow, these lessons managed to take root in the young boy's mind. Do it, that's how, 
was a maxim whose value far exceeded the occasion, he would later write. It's inconceivable to think that faced with the impossible situation on Little Round Top, out of ammunition, under seemingly endless waves of determined Confederate attack that grew closer to him with each successive wave, he didn't simply say to himself, this is hopeless, it can't be done, I don't know how to hold this position. Only to hear the voice of his father shouting to him, do it, that's how. When the war came, Lawrence Chamberlain left his position as professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College. In 1854, he'd married Miss Frances Caroline Adams, known to her friend and family as Fanny. He had been absolutely smitten by her, but Fanny made it clear that she meant to set herself up as an independent woman and that effort would take time. She would not be able to marry him for three years. Just think, honeybee, he wrote to her upon receiving the news. Only three years. Why, it's a dream. Three years will go by in a flash. Well, they had been happily married for seven years when the real flash came in the form of cannon fire directed by secessionist South Carolina and aimed at the federal Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. By September of 1862, the young Chamberlain had exchanged his black professorial robes for the blue tunic of a lieutenant colonel in the Union Army, determined to fight against the rebels that had interrupted his domestic tranquility by transgressing upon the great republic they had inherited. The 20th Maine Infantry Regiment left Portland by train and headed south under the command of Colonel Adelbert Ames with Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain as his immediate subordinate. Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine would be present at many of the most horrific battles of the 19th century. Their ordeal would begin with nothing less than the single bloodiest day in American history, Antietam. As they advanced toward the battlefield, the Green Boys from Maine began to get a taste of what they were in for. Men wounded in the Battle of South Mountain, fought on September 14th just a few days earlier, were everywhere. Red-stained white bandages covering amputated arms and legs. Those severed arms and legs would be stacked like cordwood outside of hospital tents. A great deal of the open areas were marked with mounds of dirt where the dead had just been buried. Chamberlain noticed a young boy quote, of scarcely 16 summers, as he would say, sleeping under a tree in his Confederate uniform, holding a small Bible in his hand. This was my enemy, this boy. Oh, God forgive us who made it so. So he dismounted and he approached the young rebel. And as he did, he could see that his eyes had lost their glisten and they weren't staring at the Bible in his hands, but rather down at the dirt by his feet. He then saw the red blood inside the gray tunic and the realization of it disgusted him to the core. He was dead, the boy, my enemy, but I shall see him forever. They were up before dawn on the morning of September 17, 1862. As part of two divisions making up the Union's 5th Army Corps, the 20th Maine would be held in reserve, but they'd heard the musketry rising in frequency and volume as the Union attacked through the cornfield by the Dunker Church, soon reaching such intensity that it sounded like the ripping of a huge sheet of canvas. Much closer and more ominously, they watched Union General Ambrose Burnside hurl regiment after regiment across a narrow stone bridge where they were massacred by the Confederates as they walked by twos and threes across that awful span over a creek so shallow that they all could have easily waded across it had Burnside thought to check its depth. Now that was grim business, watching men marching directly into their own murder. It would give the boys from Maine something to think about for the next 85 days, the next time Union troops would be fed into a meat grinder like that, they would be the meat. Now, by all accounts, Union General Ambrose Burnside was a good man, loyal, affable, and genuinely concerned about the safety of his men. But after McClellan allowed Lee to escape at Antietam, McClellan not only had three times Lee's numbers, he also had Lee's entire battle plan recovered from a Confederate officer who'd used it to wrap a cigar and then it fell out of his pocket. Command fell upon McClellan's friend, the amiable Burnside, who protested he was not qualified for the job. At a small hearing, Burnside reinstated his objections. Wags would later say that he not only admitted he was incompetent, he swore to it. 
Nevertheless, Lincoln, who was already at his wit's end, sacked McClellan and command of the Army of the Potomac passed to Burnside, whose extravagant mutton chop style soon became known as Side Burns. Burnside proposed to attack Lee where he would least expect it, right up the middle of his position at Fredericksburg. He laid pontoon bridges across the Rappahannock as Confederate sharpshooters picked off Union Army engineers just for sport. Still, Burnside got his army across with many fewer casualties than he expected. Savvier military minds realized that they were able to enter the town of Fredericksburg with relative ease because Robert E. Lee wanted him to be there. In fact, Lee couldn't believe his luck. Now, on the other side of the town, a flat plain led to a relatively gentle slope culminating in a broad ridge known as Marie's Heights. There, Robert E. Lee placed his artillery and began to pray. On the morning of December 13th, the thick fog lifted suddenly as if it were the rising of a curtain, and then around 11 a.m., the Confederate commander's prayers were answered as Union troops began a slow and steady march up the slope behind the town, determined to take those Southern guns. About halfway up the hill, a sunken road runs across about half of Marie's Heights, the half the Federal troops were advancing on. The downhill side was lined with a stone wall. Confederate General Thomas Cobb put 3,000 of his Georgians along this impenetrable barrier, the same men who had shot down the Union men by the hundreds as they tried to cross Burnside's bridge. With Confederate artillery lining the ridge above them, they loaded their rifles, waited patiently as the line of blue walked into range, and then the entire length of the stone wall erupted in orange flashes and a cloud of blue gunpowder, and the Union men were cut down like hay before a sky. A second wave would advance and be cut down, and then a third, and then a fourth. It was not long before the entire slope leading up to Marie's Heights seemed to be crawling. A carpet of Union blue with the wounded and the dying trying to crawl back down the hill that they had just climbed so bravely and so pointlessly. Like a steer in an abattoir, every successive Union wave brought the men of the 20th Maine closer to the front of the line. Chamberlain had time for a final notebook entry before leading his men into that musket and artillery fire. I see tears in the eyes of many a brave man looking on that sorrowful sight, yet all of us were eager to dash to the rescue, he wrote. Now, that last line is actually compelling evidence of Chamberlain's departure from the norm and into the realm of greatness. None of those men, with the exception of Lawrence Chamberlain, were eager to dash into that hell. Coming from just about anyone else, this would have the rank odor of an armchair soldier, kind of professor who would rally young boys and then send them off to die while he remained behind, wrapped in glory, safe in his faculty lounge. But Chamberlain's actions are unimpeachable, as we'll see. But to stand there and watch men being massacred piecemeal, as they were in this most lopsided of Union catastrophes, and be eagerly waiting your turn, well, that's just, it's unheard of. Now, other men, who weren't made out of this kind of stuff, nevertheless prepared to advance. I held my breath and set my teeth together, wrote a junior officer from Chamberlain's regiment, determined to not show fear if I could, by will, keep it down. As Colonel Ames and Lieutenant Colonel Chamberlain walked up and down the ranks, checking equipment, but mostly setting an example of calm determination, the boys from Maine tried to steady themselves, surrounded by a charnel house of wounded and dead men, scattered limbs, smashed heads, piles of intestines, and the entire field soggy with blood. Just a few moments earlier, General Charles Griffin watched his first brigade leave the assembly area and begin their march up the hill. There goes one of my brigades to hell, he said, and the other two will soon follow. Attention, shouted Ames. The men of the 20th Maine had loaded their muskets and fixed their bayonets. A bugler sounded the call to advance. God help us now, Ames said to Chamberlain, adding, take care of the right wing. Then he raised his sword and shouted, forward the 20th. The sun was nearly setting behind the hill in front of them as they began their march. 
Musket balls, soft, heavy lead slugs, snapped and whizzed past their heads as they turned the corner to face the entire line of Marie's Heights and the crawling carpet of dead and wounded Union Blue spread out below it like a blanket. Chamberlain would later write that his regiment, quote, charged over fences and through hedges over bodies of dead men and living ones past four lines that were lying on the ground. The survivors of the regiment that had gone before them were lying face down, the musket balls raising small little brown geysers as they slammed into the mud all around them. The 20th Maine made it to within a few feet of the stone wall. The blue of the Union men and the gray and butternut brown of the Confederates ramming home powder and ball and then blasting away at each other just a few yards apart until finally darkness fell. Now, it was mid-December, but the night grew unseasonably cold even for that time of year. And as the night deepened, they shivered in the freezing wet mud. None of them brought blankets or overcoats with them. The Confederates, relatively comfortable behind their stone wall, shot at anything that moved and often shot at things that didn't. Chamberlain was too cold to sleep. The ear-splitting roar of the cannon, the musketry, and the exploding shell had gone. Now the night was punctuated by the crack of a musket, flash of orange from behind the stone wall, and the sickening thwack of a musket ball hitting flesh, either causing a scream of pain or ending one. But the field was far from quiet, and the sound was loud, pervasive, and much, much worse than the explosions and the gunfire of a few hours earlier. Chamberlain said the entire field was a cacophony of sound, moans, screams, men calling for their mothers as they slowly bled to death in the icy mud. You could not locate the source, Chamberlain would later write, a wail so far and deep and wide as if a thousand discords were flowing together into a keynote. Weird, unearthly, and terrible to hear and bear. A biting wind had come up to make things even more miserable. Chamberlain crawled between two dark forms and pulled a third body toward him to protect his head. The living and the dead were alike to me, he would later recall. A loose shutter on one of the blasted out houses down in the town began to slowly bang back and forth in the icy wind all night long. To the exhausted professor of rhetoric, the rhythmic banging began to take on the sound of a human voice. Never forever. Forever never. Never forever. He'd never forget that sound for as long as he lived. The man of the highest physical courage and the soldier of the highest discipline may find that he has something of himself yet to learn, he wrote, recalling that terrible long night. When dawn broke on the 14th, a heartbroken Ambrose Burnside emerged from his headquarters to see what had become of the thick carpet of blue he'd seen at last light the day before. He was shocked and horrified to see that the field had gone from blue to brilliant ivory, the blue mass now gleaming bright white in the morning sun. It upset him so greatly that it took him several moments to understand what he was seeing. The hills were white because so many of the pale northern bodies had been stripped naked for their clothes during the freezing night. The survivors spent the entire day doing absolutely nothing. They lay stone still as the sun climbed towards noon and then continued to set behind Marie's Heights. The occasional bursting shell could still evoke a scream of pain, but many of the men on that field would never feel pain again. And the survivors huddled behind their fortresses of flesh, the bodies that they had stacked for cover, trembling now and then as a Confederate, trying his luck, put a musket ball into the body of former friends with what Chamberlain called a dismal thud. The second day ended and the second night began. By now, the bodies were beginning to decay despite the frigid temperatures, and the men tried to scrounge a piece of a wooden board or something to scrape out a shallow grave in the frozen mud. Now at first, they huddled around matches held within cupped hands, but not long after dark, the sky erupted into spectacular curtains of light. The aurora borealis, rare as far south as Fredericksburg, lit up the skies with an intensity none of them had ever seen before, not even the men from Maine, far away to the north. Chamberlain was transfixed by the sight, which moved his pen to open up the full scope of 18th century prose, which to the modern ear sounds stilted and contrived, but which nevertheless was very real to those of the time. 
As we bore them, the forms of our fallen heroes, on fragments of boards torn away from the fences by shot and shell to their honored graves, their own beloved North lifted her glorious lights and sent her triumphal procession along the arch that spanned her heavens. An aurora borealis, marvelous in beauty, fiery lances, banners of blood and flame, columns of pearly light, garlands and wreaths of gold, all pointing and beckoning upward. Befitting scene, who would die a nobler death or dream of more glorious burial, dead for their country's honor and lighted to burial by the meteor splendors of their northern home? You know, death lived much closer to our homes in those days. Weeks after the horrors of Fredericksburg, Chamberlain would contract a very severe case of malaria. It would stay with him on and off for the rest of his long life. His eyes turned yellow. He was racked with fever, debilitating headaches that would last for days and frequent vomiting. Despite his spirit and his constitution, he would have to take an extended leave of absence to recover back in Maine. That meant he would miss Lee's masterpiece at Chancellorsville, where Stonewall Jackson would appear at the far right of the Union line and roll it up like a blanket, leading to one of the most complete collapses in the entire war. Relieved after the catastrophe at Fredericksburg, Burnside would remain with the Army. At Chancellorsville, the Army of the Potomac would be under the command of Joe Hooker, who'd done a great deal of scheming to see to it that Burnside was relieved and he himself put in his place. Hooker was leaning against a wooden pillar of the Chancellorsville house when it took a direct hit from a rebel cannonball. The shock from which traveled down the thick column and knocked Hooker senseless. Aides would say he spent the majority of the disaster running around like a duck hit on the head. Now, by the time of Lee's second invasion, Chamberlain would be back in the field, although still deathly ill. After turning back Lee at Gettysburg and overcautious George Meade, would allow the Gray Fox to escape once more, a failure that grieved Abraham Lincoln more than any of the other disasters that befell the Army of the Potomac. Nearly a year would pass before Ulysses S. Grant, brought from his string of victories in the Western Theater, could get it moving again. Grant's first contest with Lee would take place on the same battlefield that Chancellorsville had been fought and lost on, an isolated thicket known as the Wilderness. Now, Lee had rolled up Hooker's entire right wing a year earlier, but he would roll up both of Grant's between May 5th and 7th, 1864. But this time, the Army of the Potomac did not limp back to Washington to wait a few months as yet a new commander arrived. This time, with the disaster of the Wilderness just a few hours behind them, they would take the right-hand fork in the road and head south to Richmond. And the cheer that went down the entire army as they realized that Grant was advancing after being soundly whipped shook the earth. An actual foot race took place as both armies headed south, with Lee's Army of Northern Virginia desperate to interpose itself between the hard-driving U.S. Grant and the Confederate capital at Richmond. He found a good defensive position at a little hamlet known as Spotsylvania Courthouse, the rebels literally running to beat the Federals to the high ground. Chamberlain would be there during what was not the bloodiest, but simply the most horrific single day in the war. At the tip of a salient in the Confederate lines called the Mule Shoe, the blue and the gray fought hand-to-hand -hand with bayonets for 16 hours. Hundreds of men killed, bodies stacked against hastily thrown up earthworks six and seven bodies deep, all in this incredibly tiny space. Crazed men would run and climb on top of the log barricades to fire their muskets directly into the faces of other men and then hurl it like a spear, only to be shot dead by other crazed men, who would then do exactly the same. The stress and pressure were so intense that many men, many men, who survived would recall seeing red. Their blood pressure was so high that it ruptured capillaries in the back of the eye, causing the entire landscape to turn the color of blood. Now, Chamberlain and his men would not be fighting at the mule shoe, but they would help clean up the mess, which was horrible beyond words. 
He would also be there as the two armies waltzed further south, stopping at a crossroads known as Cold Harbor, where Grant, in a rare moment of careless impatience, sent a frontal attack against Confederate fortifications that saw 7,000 men cut down in 15 minutes. The bodies so thick on the ground that you could walk across the entire battlefield without your feet ever touching the earth. And he would be there as well at the Confederate lines surrounding Petersburg, a critical rail junction just south of Richmond. Grant had finally got the drop on Lee. If he could carry those breastworks before Lee's reinforcements arrived, he would take Petersburg, cut Richmond's last supply line, and then seize the rebel capital and end the war. But Chamberlain could see what he was up against. Well-defended fortifications on the far end of a large open field. It was going to be Cold Harbor all over again. But Chamberlain had his orders. It was June 18th, 1864. The attack was set for 3 p.m. We are to charge those works, said Major George Merrick to a young Lieutenant Ransford B. Webb. Webb looked across the open field to the log walls and packed earth of the Confederate position, gleaming like the scales of a fish as sunlight glinted off of uncounted rebel bayonets. My heart dropped to my shoes, Webb recounted. Shuddering at the memory, cold drops stood out on my forehead. I could still use my eyes and turn them to the rear. On a broad plain, there was not a blue coat in sight. By this time, my blood was frozen solid. So, it was almost time. Chamberlain spoke to the men he would be leading in the assault. He was calm and confident, as he always was, and he spoke as he always did, as a professor of rhetoric would speak. Comrades, he said, we now have before us a great duty for our country to perform, and the way in which we acquit ourselves in this perilous undertaking may determine the ultimate success of the preservation of our grand republic. We know that some must fall. It may be any of you or it may be I. But I feel that you will all go in manfully and make such a record as will make our loyal American people grateful. I can but feel that our action in this crisis is momentous. And who can know but God if our action today may be the one thing needful to break and destroy this unholy rebellion. Lieutenant Webb felt himself regain control of his breathing, although he still thought his heart would just beat its way out of his chest. He realized that Chamberlain possessed many excellent qualities that made him a great leader, but chief among them all was a quality not numbered among the seven cardinal virtues, and this was his boundless courage. Courage, the greatest virtue of all, without which all the others fall. That, Webb realized, was what made Chamberlain a great man. His absolute indifference to danger, Webb would say. In the field, his mind worked as deliberately and as quietly as it would in his own study. Three o'clock came and Chamberlain led his men out into the field, walking steadily. The familiar buzzing of musket balls came upon him again, but he kept on walking. After walking a small distance, he turned to face his men, motioning with his saber to the left, obliquing his line so that all of his men would hit the enemy works at the same time. And just as he was turning back to face the enemy, he staggered to the side as if kicked by a horse. The soft lead of a musket ball entered below his right hip tore through his groin and came to rest just inside the skin on his left side. He felt the pain first in his back and his immediate thought was, what will my mother say her boy shot in the back? Meaning facing away from the enemy. Such things were very, very important in that heroic age. Blood was pouring from the huge hole in his side, but his disciplined mind continued to work coolly and clearly. If he went down, his men may break under the murderous fire. As long as he was standing, they would follow him. But he'd lost so much blood and the bullet had torn away so many ligaments that he didn't think he could stand for more than a few seconds. So with the last of his strength, he turned around, facing his men, plunged his saber into the ground, and then leaned upon it as if he were inspecting them on parade. The saber steadied him enough to remain on his feet, and he would later write that he could remember each individual face of his men as they surged past him. 
He felt his deep pride for them and his affection for them too. And then he dropped to one knee and then the other. And finally, he fell over on his side and the blackness took him. Took him for what he and everyone else firmly believed would be forever. Now, so far, I've dealt with the life of the hero of Gettysburg everywhere except Gettysburg, so that we could see what kind of a man this was. Do you feel he's a great man, or is he just another officer? Because now, we go to the place that made him famous, and throughout, keep asking yourself if just any other officer would have behaved the same way. Both the Union and the Confederates had raced to the field at Gettysburg, vying for position. Unlike what would happen later at Spotsylvania Courthouse, the Union won this one. Historians are often struck by the fact that in this greatest battle of the Civil War, the North came in from the South and the South came in from the North. And on that first day of the three-day Battle of Gettysburg, July 1st, 1863, Union elements fought a delaying action as Union General George Meade set up his famous fishhook line of defense. It was a strong position, well up on the high ground, anchored by Culp's Hill on the right and running down the length of Cemetery Ridge. Now to the south, at the far left of the Union line, are two small conical hills called Round Top, further south, and Little Round Top, between it and Cemetery Ridge. By the morning of July 2nd, the Confederates had matched the Union positions all down the line, just across a broad valley on the opposing line of hills called Seminary Ridge. Now, there were a great many logistical delays for the rebels that day, and they weren't in position until after 5 p.m. late in the day. Now, meanwhile, inexplicably, Union General Daniel Sickles, formerly a New York politician most famous for shooting dead his wife's lover, decided to advance, completely without orders and all alone. And there he sat, his entire Third Corps, 800 yards in front of the rest of the Union Army. Now, in military language, he had uncovered Little Round Top, leaving a huge hole through which the Confederates could attack. There was no one on Little Round Top because until Sickles decided to move, the Confederates couldn't get there. But then he did, so now they could. If the Confederates could take Little Round Top, they would be able to see the entire Union Army as if from a hot air balloon, including the status of reinforcements coming up from the rear. And if they could get some guns up there, then they could blast the entire Union Army that they'd done so many times before. Union forces would have nowhere to go but south. There'd be nothing between Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and Washington, the capture of which would mean the end of the war. An electric spark ran through Confederate General James Longstreet's First Corps, which held the lines opposite both Sickles and Little Round Top. He sent a brigade to take the hill, fortify it, and hold it. And at exactly the same moment, Union commanders realized the incredible danger they were in, and they rushed everything they had onto Little Round Top before the rebels got there. The Union was extending its line further south, past Sickles, and anchoring it on the small hill. Now, the first regiment to get there went the furthest, and three others filed in behind. That first regiment was the 20th Maine Infantry, commanded by a professor of rhetoric named Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. While under sporadic but increasing Confederate artillery fire, he set up a defensive line along the military crest of the hill. Facing the rebels that would be coming from the west, he would extend his line to his left. The man who happened to be on the far left of that line was not just at the end of the 20th Maine. That man was at the far left of the entire Union Army. Chamberlain didn't have long to prepare and he didn't have long to wait. The first thing that struck him was the sudden quiet. The endless explosions that had been pounding for two days simply stopped and Chamberlain instantly realized what this meant. The Confederate artillery had ceased firing so as not to hit their own infantry as it advanced on the Union position. They would be here any second now. The rebels knew how important that hill was, and so did Chamberlain. One of the officers describing that man remembered the moments just before the fight began. Up and down the line, he would remember, with a last word of encouragement or caution, walks the quiet man. 
whose calm exterior concealed the fire of the warrior and a heart of steel, whose careful dispositions and ready resource, whose unswerving courage and audacious nerve in the last desperate crisis are to crown himself and his faithful soldiers with laurels that cannot fade. Now, just as they were bracing for the Confederate assault, Lieutenant James H. Nichols, commander of Company K in the 20th Maine, ran over to Chamberlain to say that something strange was happening behind the Confederate lines. Jumping up onto a boulder, Chamberlain could see the ranks of the Confederates who would be making the attack, but behind them flowed a steady stream of men heading even further off to the left, filing into the small valley between the two hills. Chamberlain immediately knew what they were up to. The rebels would launch the main frontal attack, and while the Union men were heavily engaged, this smaller force would outflank them and take them from behind. And that would be the end of that. He had no more troops, and he had no more time. How could he possibly hold this position with a handful of men while being attacked from both sides? Do it! That's how. As the rebels started advancing, Chamberlain called for his color sergeant, 25-year-old Andrew Tozier. He pointed to a position on his far left and told Tozier to stand there and plant the flag. As the main body of the rebels broke into a run and started charging up the hill, he had his entire line step half to the left, bending around the flag at a right angle. Now this thinned the part of the line that would take the brunt of the attack, but it also put a small firing line aimed directly at the flanking party. The rebels, who thought that they would take Chamberlain by surprise, were going to be in for a surprise of their own. And then, the Confederates from Alabama let loose the rebel yell and charged up the hill. We know not the future and cannot plan for it much, but we can hold our spirits and our bodies so pure and high, we may cherish such thoughts and such ideals and dream such dreams of lofty purpose that we can determine and know what manner of men we will be whenever and wherever the hour strikes that calls us to noble action. No man becomes suddenly different from his habit and his cherished thought. Confederate Lieutenant Colonel William Oates, who was commanding the 15th Alabama Infantry assaulting Little Round Top, would write that the first volley from the 20th Maine was, quote, the most destructive fire I have ever seen, unquote. The rebels moved like water flowing uphill, coming to within 10 paces of the Union men before being blasted back down again to regroup. They came again, seemingly endless swarms of tough and determined men, this time they made it to the Union line, and in desperate hand-to-hand -hand fighting, pushed them back several yards. Wherever the danger was the thickest, there was Chamberlain. The edge of the battle rolled backward and forward like a wave, he said. On the far left, at the angle of his makeshift hinge, Chamberlain caught a glimpse of Sergeant Tozier. He'd picked up a musket from a dead Union man, and he was loading the rifle with his right hand as he held the colors in the crook of his left arm. Chamberlain remembered thinking the sight reminded him of a Greek hero and worthy of an epic poem, but he did not have the time to compose one just at that moment. He saw too that the men he had placed at right angles to his main line awaiting the rebel flankers had taken what seems like a trivial action, but one which gave Chamberlain tremendous confidence. They'd removed their cartridges from their belts and laid them out on the ground in front of them for faster loading, and they had stuck their ramrods into the dirt in front of them for the same reason. These were the actions of men determined to stay where they were. Again, the rebels came, and again. The flanking party, running as fast as they could and completely unheard due to the ear-splitting musket fire, came charging into sight, holding their rifles with one hand, and the explosion of musket fire from Union men that could not have possibly been there blasted them back down the hill, utterly convinced that entire Union regiments had arrived to reinforce the open flank. This continued for almost two hours. And every time the rebels came up the hill, there were more and more of them and fewer and fewer of the men from Maine. Most of them were out of ammunition by now. The most recent attack had been repulsed by throwing rocks, but 
That would only work once. The men from Alabama would much rather face a thrown rock than a named bullet. Chamberlain had given them everything he had. He may not have had any limits, but surely his men did. Now, right around this time, as the awful hand-to-hand fighting had driven the Confederates back down again, a rebel sharpshooter from the 15th Alabama had silently moved to the side of the battle and taken a position between two large rocks, which meant he could take his time. There, just 30 yards away, stood the Union commander, so close as to be almost embarrassing. The worst marksman in the entire Confederate army could make this shot with ease. Now, he knew nothing about the man in his sights. All he could see was the blue uniform and the shoulder epaulets of a lieutenant colonel in the Army of the United States. He drew a careful bead. Regardless of the range, this would be one to crow loud about. He pulled the hammer back on the firing pin, and then, to his amazement, he discovered that he could not pull the trigger. Puzzled for a moment and then angry with himself, he aimed for the center of the blue tunic and his finger would not move. He didn't know why, but he could not pull the trigger. Finally, he gave up and went back down the hill. Now, this would be a fine piece of fiction from a novelist, but the private memoirs of Confederate soldiers usually do not overflow with brotherly love towards Yankee officers. So, make of that what you will. And now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's time to render your verdict. Chamberlain himself, in a private letter to his beloved wife and elsewhere besides, could have taken credit for calling for a charge and not a soul on either side would begrudge him that. He knew they were out of ammunition and that the next Confederate assault would succeed. The choices were either to run forward or run backwards. That's all that was left. He made his decision and turned to the survivors of the 20th Maine. He did not yell, charge, nor did he shout, follow me, boys, and he most certainly did not draw his sword and start running down the hill. He spoke two words, shouting to be heard all the way down the line. He said, fix bayonets. And then, by his own account, the men under his command twisted and locked the wicked 16-inch spike to the end of their muskets and leapt forward like Olympians off the starting blocks at the sound of a pistol. The men on the far left swung around on their own, and as they charged, Chamberlain drew his sword and joined them. Now I ask you, which do you find more impressive? A man that draws such respect and admiration that the men under his command are willing to follow a desperate order, or a man whose entire life was such a shining example to those around him that they instinctively acted on this order before he had time to give it? After the war, Chamberlain will be called the Lion of the Round Top, but that's an injustice. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain did not lead the charge that day. He didn't lead the charge because he didn't have to lead it. His discipline, his kindness, his keen intelligence, his moral clarity, and his relentless courage turned every one of his men into the Lion of Round Top. After Lee's surrender at Appomattox, the defeated Confederates formed ranks a final time behind General John B. Gordon, who would lead them through their greatest trial of the entire war. His men would bring their battle flags, shot torn pieces of silk embroidered with the names of the great Southern victories that they had won. The souls of all of their friends were in those flags, men they had been willing to die for, but who had ended up dying for them. And now they would have to take those flags and their muskets and run the gauntlet of well-fed, well-equipped Yankees who would be crowing loud. Many of the Confederates were barefoot and all of them were hungry. They were dressed in tattered rags and no one was more keenly aware than they were of just how little they resembled the once glorious Army of Northern Virginia. They staggered along behind Gordon on his horse, a man who'd had half his face hacked away in defense of what he believed to be his country. And the instant that the nose of his horse passed the farthest soldier in the Union line, a bugle blew and every single Union soldier snapped to attention at once and proceeded to perform the rifle drill known as carry arms. There was no mistaking it. Gordon knew the instant he heard the first click of the heels what was happening. The Union men were offering a salute. 
Gordon was so surprised that he accidentally spurred his horse, which reared, allowing Gordon to draw his sword and touch it to the toe of his boot, returning the gesture to the man he would later call one of the knightliest soldiers of the Federal Army. But Chamberlain, of course, who else? The salute was entirely his idea, and he weighed the idea of presenting arms to the rebels, but he thought that might be going too far. Gordon turned in the saddle and barked an order. His filthy, starving, weeping men straightened immediately, and they dipped their beloved battle flags in salute as they passed. Chamberlain would still be amazed by it himself, describing it many years later. On our part, not a sound of trumpet more, nor roll of drum, not a cheer, nor fore, nor whisper of vainglorying, nor motion of a man standing gained at the order, but an odd stillness, rather, and breath-holding, as if it were the passing of the dead. Regiment by regiment, the Confederates stacked their arms and then gently laid down their most priceless possessions, their battle flags. They could barely part with them, and when they finally summoned the strength to do so, they laid them down gently, painfully, reluctantly, with tears streaming down their dirty and weather-worn faces. And in the clean, well-fed blue ranks, many men were crying too, their lips trembling, wondering if they would have had the courage to do what these men were doing if the situation had been reversed. Lawrence Chamberlain would return to Bowdoin College and resume teaching. He would run as a Republican and become the 32nd governor of the great state of Maine. He stayed active in politics, but especially in the affairs of the men who had served with him, attending many reunions over the years. He would die at age 85 on February 24, 1914, as a result of the terrible wound he had taken outside of Petersburg 50 years before. It had never really healed. He'd spent the last half century of his long life in constant and severe pain, pain that never went away. For five decades, this man of great dignity would wear a primitive version of a colostomy bag under his black professorial robes, and the damage caused by that Confederate bullet would rob both he and his beloved Fanny of a sex life for the remainder of his days. The constant infection caused by the wound finally grew stronger than even he was. He was the last man to be officially recognized as dying from a wound sustained during the Civil War. And many consider him, rightfully in my opinion, to have been the last casualty of that terrible conflict. Many years after his stand on Little Round Top, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain would write about the field at Gettysburg and the men he'd lost there. And these are the words he wrote. In great deeds, something abides. On great fields, something stays. Forms change and pass, bodies disappear, but spirits linger to consecrate the ground for the vision place of souls. And reverent men and women from afar, and generations that know us not and that we know not of, heart drawn to see where and by whom great things were suffered and done for them, shall come to this deathless field to ponder and dream and lo, the shadow of a mighty presence shall wrap them in its bosom and the power of the vision pass into their souls. To me, those are the words of a good man and they are as well those of a great man. There is no better evidence of the great man theory of history than this life. The defense now rests. <laughs>